Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring. We appreciate Tommy as he opens each episode, inviting us to light the fuse of possibility. If you don't already know Tom, you should get to know him, his music and his message. He's not only a wizard with a guitar, a founding member of the rock group Rage Against the Machine, and part of the supergroup Prophets of Rage. Importantly, he's a political activist who deploys his art and his energy on behalf of freedom fighters everywhere, from striking nurses and teachers to domestic workers and Black Lives Matter organizers to veterans against war. He extends his solidarity to every impulse toward peace and justice, toward freedom. So thank you, Tom, for all you do. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malika Leem and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling all justice seekers and freedom fighters, and we're tuned into the big and agitating questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? Where do we come from and where do we intend to go? We're together in this intentional fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited and busy in projects of repair and revolution. We're broadcasting from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a conundrum wrapped in a contradiction, this place of outsized and crazy complexity built by the hands of immigrants and the hopeful masses arriving in the Great Migration. These lands, stewarded by many peoples and lineages, ancient and contemporary home to many indigenous peoples and nations, including the Three Fires Confederacy. We acknowledge them and thank them as we, justice seekers and freedom fighters, organizers and activists, remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide, and pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. Today's poem is Good Bones by Maggie Smith. Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short and the world is at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I am trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. Good Bones by Maggie Smith.
Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to write a short, authentic piece from nowhere, the nowhere of our freedom seminar, the nowhere of the underground, and the nowhere of utopia. This is your time to put words on the page without second guessing, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop into your head unannounced. Here's today's prompt. Name 10 steps you'll take in the next five days, arm in arm with others, to make this place beautiful. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we visit with comrades and co-conspirators who can help us think more deeply and clearly about the world we share, name this political moment with clarity and hope, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement for freedom and justice. We release our most radical imaginations, and we ask both what's going on and then what is to be done. We're joined today by Howard Waitzkin, a primary care physician and sociologist who's taught social medicine at a wide range of clinics, colleges, and universities, including the United Farm Workers Clinic in Salinas, California, La Clinica de la Raza in Oakland, Stanford University, Massachusetts General Hospital, and the University of California. He's an emeritus professor at the University of New Mexico and adjunct professor of internal medicine at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Howard, so much for joining me. Thank you, Bill. And you are joining us from Korea. Um, Tell us where you are and, and what you're doing in Korea. I'm in a village of about 60 people. Wow in the southwest rural region of Korea, Mm -hmm. which has historically always been an area of resistance, rebellion, uh, a lot of wonderful mutual aid type projects that the people have done. The the peasant revolt against the uh, uh, Chosun Dynasty happened here, and the revolts against Japanese imperialism happened here, and the revolts against the dictatorship in South Korea happened here. So, so you're breathing the yeah, you're breathing the anti-imperialist air. It, it it really is that way, and people actually are living largely uh, outside capitalism here. It's been astonishing. Uh, the there is agriculture going on and a lot of uh, young people trying to build lives that involve uh, non-financial struggles and non-exploitative jobs hmm. uh, in a variety of ways. So it's been it's been very uh, enlightening and, and unexpected. The reason I'm here is because my partner, my wife, Mira Lee, is a doctor. She came to work with me in the States at a rural health center in New Mexico. Mm. And um, one thing led to another. 
we were in the States in Illinois actually together for about 10 years. And then she actually felt the need to get back to her doctoring and she's licensed here, also her family and, and friends. And she also really got burned out by racism. She was picking up a lot of anti-Asian racism while she was there, mm. which has now flourished uh, in the States. Terrible. So it's mainly because of her life and, and what she wanted to do that I'm here. But it sounds like you're saying there's this kind of uh, community that's living either beyond or outside or um, in opposition to capitalism. That's very much echoes the, the life you two had here in Illinois, right? I mean, this this notion of... Um, of living cooperatively and living uh, off the off the grid, so to speak, is there a parallel? Are the two communities very similar? Oh yeah, there's a lot of similarity, and we were surprised how much similarity there there already is here. Um, even to things like young people farming and studying in a reading group the peasant approach to agriculture mm. being more productive, more efficient, and of course, safer than capitalist industrial agriculture, which is dangerous, exploitative, causes pandemics. Uh, so, so we've been very uh, pleasantly surprised. This is actually happening all over the world. It's, you know, we see bits and pieces of it in our lives. But basically, everywhere I've gone in recent years and, and my continuing contacts with comrades in different countries, similar things are happening. People are, you know, it's very tough. It's very challenging. But the exciting part of this period of time is that people are actually deciding to live their lives differently and, and in many ways to walk away from capitalism. Yeah, but when you say a peasant form of agriculture, you're certainly not referring to feudal lords. So what exactly are you referring to? Well, we're, for, we're referring to uh, organization of agriculture that doesn't involve capitalists who exploit labor, who extract surplus value, who speed up labor processes to maximize production, who don't organize uh, animals in factory barns where their excrement and urine flows into the surrounding nature. Uh, if they're pigs or chickens, their viruses intermix with other bird viruses They cause uh, influenza pandemics. Uh, they don't destroy natural habitat to build factory farms, mm -hmm. uh, which is the reason that we have the COVID 19 pandemic so so it's quite different actually and uh and it's it's wonderful to see how people help each other it's busy you know and people don't make an enormous amount of money but certainly enough to live on and seem to be thriving you've always advocated that enough to live on but not enough to um own the world or to uh, you know, dominate other people. And that's how you lived in Illinois. You lived in a, in an intentional community here, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's actually a, mostly a group of young people and I'm still very active with them horizontal state line. 
we have uh, every other week meetings and I participate regularly. I came to one of those meetings. It was quite delightful. Yeah. So um, still going on. It's actually since the last time we talked, we've, uh, you know, we previously had acquired a farm very inexpensively and easily that's now being used to produce a lot of food to feed individuals working there, some of the surrounding community, and also to make some money at farmers markets, people. And we also recently bought a building in in downtown Rockford, which is, uh, you know, a not attractive area. It's not yet gentrified, but this is a, a building that was used by different community organizations historically. And we were able to acquire it for Horizontal and uh, a couple of other groups, a group of women making clothing and uh, a musical group and so forth. There's housing there as well, six units that are being occupied very cheaply by some of our organizers. Mm. So yeah, it's it's actually been very, um, very sweet. And I've had actually very little to do with the organization. Right, right. You're the elder, but these are practical expressions of what you call a solidarity economy. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah. And and so talk a bit more about that. It includes communal living, cooperative housing, collective food production is terribly important. Um, to, to, to your efforts, it sounds like both in Korea and in, in Illinois. The solidarity economy is emerging throughout the world as the basic orientation of the post-capitalist economy. So there are elements in it that could be traditionally thought of as socialist or even communist, but those names, interestingly enough, are not actually needed to describe what's happening. So it's often called solidarity economy or more recently it's called the new economy. Mm. And uh, and so, so people don't get into hassles with uh, easily misunderstood words to refer to the economic differences. Mm -hmm. And basically, it recognizes that there are a small number of basic needs that people have. One is for food. One is for housing. Housing usually is the big one in terms of requiring us to be what is loosely called wage slaves, you know, working for jobs to pay the rent basically, or to pay mortgage if you were lucky enough to get a loan to buy a home. Um, and so one of the first steps in the solidarity economy is to try to organize relationships so that those two needs get met with very little out-of-pocket expenses. And mm. Our goal, which we actually have come pretty close to achieving, is $150 per person per month mm. for housing. Mm. And um, and roughly the same amount for food. Uh, it seems like a stretch, but in fact, uh, it's doable when we don't have to uh, worry about 
selling our labor to someone who is basically exploiting it for surplus value, taking the value of our labor off to somewhere else mm. and investing it in ways that destroy the environment and cause uh, militarism and cause police violence and incarceration and so on and so forth. Um, so those are the two biggies. And then the other focuses are joy in life. There you go. Which may seem weird. That doesn't seem weird to me. So, so there are people who are devoting their lives to the arts, to music, to um, individual expression through crafts, including making clothing. So clothing is another, can be a big expense. And so we now have a group of women with 16 sewing machines at this, at this new building who are really trying to make clothes. Mm. Uh, so those are some of the things, Bill. Um, and you wrote about this. I, I, you know, one of my favorite things that you wrote is the book Rinky Dink Revolution. Um, say a word about that book, where it came from and, and where it's gone. So several years ago, and it was largely through this experience with young people who asked me and I think four other people over 28 to join them as kind of as advisors. But of course, I've learned more, much more from them than I've taught them. It's always the way it is. Yeah. And in that context, in, in, the, in the process of doing readings and study with people, we, of course, try to confront what is revolution? And, you know, there's a saying that supposedly was said by Frederick Jameson, who's a literary critic, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of our economic system. Right. So we can have images of global warming, seas rising, catastrophic weather, fires, and then, of course, nuclear war, other forms of catastrophe. Alien invasions, alien invasions, for example, we can, we've seen it in the movies. Yeah, but actually imagining how a transition from our capitalist economy can occur. Now, there's a tough one, you know, and yet that's our challenge to use whatever gifts we have in terms of our cerebral, our brain capacities to imagine what the post-capitalist economy is, what it will be, and what steps it's, we need to get from A to B. Mm. So that was a project that came out of the, the group that I mentioned. Um, and the basic theme is Capitalism, actually racial capitalism, is a source of essentially all our major problems now. You know, if we look at um, poverty, inequality, if we look at racism, if we look at racial exploitation in terms of racial capitalism, if we look at various aspects of gender oppression, 
if we look at destruction of the environment, if we look toward health and mental health problems, if we look toward deteriorating education, basically every area that we're concerned about comes from the characteristics of capitalism. I mean, it's not to say capital, capitalism is the only thing to look at there, but it is a unifying cause that mm. explains most of our terrible problems that we face mm. now. But, but the issue is, because it's so hard to imagine how to end capitalism, what most of us have done, including certainly me, is to get involved in the specific problem areas. Like for me, it's been mostly around health access and mental health access problems. So I've done a lot of work in community health centers. I was one of the you know, founders and writers of the single payer proposal for national health, pro pro national health program in the US. Um, and there are similar efforts that go on around gender, around in incarceration, around abolition of police and so forth. Um, so what happens is that we wind up trying to deal with the effects of capitalism rather than capitalism as the cause. Mm. And so weeks, months, years go by and capitalism is still there causing those problems. So what this represents is an effort to move beyond that, to try to figure out what revolution actually consists of in this period of history. Because mm -hmm. our, our conception of what it is actually is different from, as a comrade put it recently in reviewing Ricky Dick Revolution, it's different from our image of Che in the beret picking up the, the gun and, and, and fighting a violent war. We now have a situation where militarism is so profound that actually confronting that through violent revolution, now that's a big, big undertaking. But, but the fact is there are other ways to do it, other ways to move away from capitalism. And so that's what this is focused on. Both creative ways, like some of the, some of the directions that we've talked about in terms of solidarity economy, food, housing, and so forth. And also what we call uh, creative destructions. Right. And this involves, this involves stopping our consent to capitalism. This is a theme that comes out of Antonio Gramsci's work in the period of Italian fascism. He pointed out when he, from prison that fascist regimes can't survive only by force. They have to have what he called hegemonic ideology or ideas right. that get us as a population to consent to the practices of fascism. So likewise, in our capitalist society, we all have ideas that lead to fears, that lead to the sense of being trapped, that lead to the sense of actually being in prison, even if there aren't bars there, mm. because we have to, you know, we have to be essentially wage slaves. Um, and 
We also pay our taxes, half of which go for war, half of our, that's federal tax, half of our local taxes go to police. Right. And how do those things continue? It's because we consent to it. Even if we don't want to, we consent. Right. That's right. That's right. And then in terms of the money we do have, especially if, if you get, if you live on the planet a while, you know, most of us have little approaches to savings, checking accounts, savings accounts, retirement accounts. We have uh, homes that we may have mortgages for, or some of us have lived long enough to pay them off. Um, we have credit cards and so forth. And every time we participate in those activities, the banks take our money and invest it in exactly the things that are destroying us and destroying the planet. That's how capitalism survives. It's through our consent. So what Ricky Dink Revolution also does is it, is it advocates, and you know many of us are actually doing this, things like tax resistance, resisting half of income tax, and redirecting that money to productive activities like getting a farm, like mm -hmm. getting a building. Uh, and also um, uh, changing our investments in that way. It also advocates instead of symbolic politics, that is getting out in the street to show our symbolic opposition to something. And we're very careful about the way we use our time and energy and we, we choose our struggles in such a way that our, resist, our actions of resistance, our actions that truly slow down or stop the processes of capitalism. And, and one of the best uh, examples of that is Standing Rock and now the multiple other uh, pipeline uh, efforts to stop the flow of petroleum and to you know, save rivers, to save water supplies, to save sacred spaces, and so forth. Those things are not symbolic actions, just express our point of view, but they're actually actions that stop or slow down the process of capitalist uh, production. Right. So that's basically what Rinky Dink is hard for. Right. I, I just want to advertise the title again. It's Rinky Dink Revolution, um, Revolutions. And the subtitle is hefty. It's got a, a quirky, funny title, but the subtitle be Moving Beyond Capitalism by Withholding Consent, Creative Constructions, and Creative Destructions. And it's really worth reading. Um, uh, Monthly Review Press. And who, who co-publishes it? The Raja Press. Raja Press. In Canada, in Canada actually did the did the uh, printed version. Yeah. And, let, and while you mention it, Bill, let me give a pitch because those two presses actually are also collaborating on a series of manifestos slash pamphlets following Rinky Dink Revolution. Uh, the series is called Moving Beyond Capitalism Now! Exclamation point. And we're encouraging people who are struggling toward a different society, a different economy, 
in such areas as I've been bugging you about education, for instance, but we're also focusing on abolition, we're focusing on the environment and so forth. How do we actually get from A to B? Right. What do we actually do to get from, let's say, capitalist agriculture to post-capitalist agriculture? Right. So I'd yeah. encourage people to, to take part in that. We'd love to get more participation. Yeah, and I, I want to go back to something you were mentioning around. I, I love the idea that you choose your struggles, not to, to be symbolic. Yes, it's important to symbol, symbolically resist, but to try to actually slow down the functioning of capitalism. And of course, Standing Rock is the great example. But you've been a long time tax resistor. Is that right? You don't pay your taxes appropriately. You can admit it to me. I don't pay half of income taxes, Mira is with me on this, the half that goes to militarism. And how long has that been going on? Since the Vietnam War. Wow. And how many times have you gone to federal prison for that? Well, zero. And, uh, and you don't go to prison unless you are dishonest with the IRS. If you don't report your income, or if you don't uh, uh, communicate what you're doing, uh -huh. That can eventually lead to prison. But the last people out of the 20,000 or so people who resist federal income tax every year, the last time anybody has actually spent any jail time was over 20 years ago. Hmm. And that was for not reporting income or fraudulently reporting income. Uh -huh. It's not for what I'm doing. It's not what most tax resistors do. And so you just say, I'm not paying half, you just say out loud, I'm not paying half my taxes. I'm not going to pay half. Uh -huh. I'm going to, I'm going to pay, I'm going to pay the other half. I hope you guys use it. <laughs> but the half that you are making me pay for war, I'm going to pay for uh, productive, healthy, uh, worthwhile, uh, things to pay, to spend money on, like community-based um, solidarity economy approaches to providing food and housing. Right. right. Yeah. So, so and, 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 you know, it's actually um, an interesting process. It's a, you know, the, among the ways to resist, it's a, it's definitely among the safest. One of the issues to keep in mind is that the IRS is a very stressed out institution. There have been mm. tremendous cutbacks. And, uh, and so the possibility of actually getting audited and getting hassled is actually pretty low. It's like one in 30,000 uh. tax returns actually gets audited now. And, it, and, it, and, and there are multiple avenues of appeal, both within the IRS, and then in tax court, and then outside of tax court. So it's something that I don't want to spend all my time on. Right. But it's something that is pretty straightforward. And it actually generates a lot of money. In, in Rinky Dink Revolution, uh, I did the numbers and, you know, it generates uh, just among the people we're talking about, uh, 20 to $30 billion a year. Wow. That is a lot. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's actually more than the IR, more money than the IRS is funded for. It's actually reaching the level of public education. Wow. 
just by redirecting taxes and investments. Wow. Now that assumes that instead of 20,000, there would be something like 10 million people who would be doing it. Mm. That's when you get into the 20, 30 billion mm. saved a year. Mm. But it's a, it's a pretty penny, big nest egg for the solidarity economy. Yes. And, you know, and, and because I, I try to walk the talk, you know, I've actually tried to do this in Illinois with Mira and actually several other comrades who are trying to divert, you know, fairly small amounts of money, but not zero to these purposes. It's amazingly easy and fun to do. So it's, believe it or not, tax resistance and redirecting investments as one form of resistance for people who have been on the planet for a while is an upper. I love it that you you have a way of uh, both being modest about rinky-dink revolutions, but also being uh, bold. And I always love it that you link joy and justice. It's not enough to set your jaw and go out there into the streets and be tough. It's it's important that life is grasped in its totality, and that includes giving yourself, uh, loving your life enough to enjoy life. And I, I always think that's a form of resistance in these, this world that wants to brutalize us, that it, it's important that we love our own lives and love the world. Well, well let me just respond. You know, let's, let's consider mental health. It's an area that I've done a lot of work in, with, uh, you know, in medicine. Um, so revolutionaries, are at a certain risk for mental disorders in terms of sadness. And people who uh, are doing forms of resistance that don't seem to get anywhere as far as actually changing the system are pretty prone to depression or worse. And there is actually research that shows very clearly that doing revolution actively, day by day, building it into one's daily life with comrades who you care about and are accomplishing something is actually really great for mental health. That's, That's what I meant. That's what I meant by upper. But I'm not just saying it, you know, as kind of a funny way to describe it, an upper it actually really does enhance mental health. And in fact, in the book on social medicine, Social Medicine and the Coming Transformation. This is your latest book, yes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our last chapter, the end of the book, is about that very topic, the, mm -hmm. the mental health of social medicine practitioners mm -hmm. and what enhances it. And what enhances it is the sense that I'm living today happily, and one reason that I'm living it happily is because of the struggles that I'm engaging in that are going somewhere with comrades I love mm -hmm. and care mm -hmm. about and cherish. Let me go back um, and, and, and to your younger days. You've been an activist for your adult life. You've been a practicing physician. Um, you've been a sociologist and a scholar. Um, what got you into the What brought you to the movement? What is your origin story in terms of the movement? 
Okay, so my origin story is, um, as far as I can tell, it's as, as follows. So I was born and grew up in a pretty poor working class family in a small town in Ohio. My parents were office workers and they were precarious. And I learned that life is scarcity and risk and danger. On the other hand, I had a grandfather who, my dad's dad, who actually was a draft resistor, as I am, except he and his brother, both my brother and I are draft resistors. He and his brother were draft resistors in the czar's army. Wow. (laughs) And they both escaped in 1902. My, my grandfather came to Ohio, this tiny town named Wadsworth, and started a farm there that he lost in the Great Depression with my grandmother. He then became a house painter and a unionizer. So even though my growing up was precarious, I had this wonderful influence from him and, his, and a whole bunch of comrades of his that I would interact with regularly. And um, and by the way, his his brother went to Brazil, <laughs> and, wow. and so I actually have a branch of my family in Latin America, which relates to a lot of the work that I've done. But in any case, um, my parents were not as active as my grandfather, but they shared, you know, a good deal of of his political views, and so. When I was five, we were living in this working class town and I had a friend at school named Winston, first grade. And I invited him over and we played and he invited me over and we played at his home and Several years later, I realized that Winston was black. Mm. And and around that time, when I became aware that, wait a second, I've been playing with a friend, in fact, more than one, who are different from me, and they're being subject to problems that even though I have problems, they're not like their problems. So that actually was the start of it. And in high school, I actually, you know, got as a crusading high school newspaper editor, I actually uh, initiated with some of the, um, you know, small number of black students and a much larger number of non-black students, the a book barbershop boycott because the black students had to go 30 miles into Cleveland to get a haircut because the local barbers wouldn't cut their hair. So at the age of 16, I got my first death threat from the Ku Klux Klan of Northeastern Ohio. 
but we desegregated the local barbershops with that. So that's a brief answer, and it was kind of all uphill from there. All uphill. You left, you left that small town in Ohio and went to Harvard, right? I did. Yeah. And that's, um, and that's uh, another, you know, in some ways, funny story looking back at it, because, uh, you know, I often say that, you know, a lot of my friends from junior high and high school either died in Vietnam or became chronically unemployed workers. And somehow I lucked out. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I don't know exactly how that happened. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I got some good advice from a couple of teachers and, and so forth. And I basically lucked out. And a lot of my life, uh, things that have happened, I frankly do attribute to luck. Obviously, it needed, I needed to have some skill also. But uh, what made me different from the other folks I grew up in, I think it's it's mainly that I was really lucky, and I'm and I'm very grateful for that. That actually yeah. motivates me on a day to day basis. Yeah, I mean, I think I think every life is a dialectical dance between choice and chance. I mean, you make choices, but you also were you know there, but the grace of God, we're all kind of hanging by a thread in some sense. But but I'm interested as an activist, you've. You've been a, a an activist for for the concept of social medicine. You've been an activist who understood, I think, very early that capitalism and health did not go together, and that must have caused you both, um, again, a lot of purpose in your in your work, but also a fair amount of resistance and grief. Uh, I would think coming from some of the elite spaces you were in, but but you concluded fairly early that capitalism was not a good match for good health. Yeah, actually, my first uh, book, which was a fairly short book that I wrote during my internship and residency, uh, requested by uh, one of my uh, advisors who was doing a series, uh, was called The Exploitation of Illness in Capitalist Society. Wow. So I've been dealing with this theme for a long time. Uh, and, and, the, one of the amazing things to me is that my analysis of that problem is almost exactly the same as it was then. So 50 years later, it still looks the same. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there are obviously changes in the, in the specific ways in which capitalism leads to social determination of illness and death. It's a little bit different now, but not a lot different. Mm -hmm. Capitalism has been socially determining illness and early death for its entire history. And in fact, the first works of social medicine were those done by Friedrich Engels, comrade of Karl Marx. Right. In the great book of social epidemiology called The Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844, which is the first book of social epidemiology. The first descriptions in depth of black lung, coal miners pneumoconiosis, cotton lung, repetitive motion injury, environmental health problems because of pollution from factories, uh, and on and on. Uh, very, very in-depth analysis by Engels that, that actually informed the whole struggle that, toward revolution that Engels and Marx were involved in. 
I did not know that. I never read that that particular piece by Engels. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, anybody who's interested at all in social medicine should read that. It's, it's easy reading. It's actually a page turner. It's hard to put down. Wow. And, and, you know, one of the things that we bring out in the book uh, on social medicine is Engels, you know, was indebted to his lover, Mary Burns. Uh, Mary Burns was an Irish working class <clears throat> woman who worked in the factory that Engels uh, managed for his wealthy father. And Mary Burns actually introduced Engels to the health problems and the mental health problems and the many other types of problems that workers in England in that period of early capitalism were experiencing. Uh, she actually contributed a lot to his ideas and he acknowledged that in various letters and things like that, but never actually in his published writings, which is a beef that I've had <laughs> since I started reading that book. But in any case, uh, there is a, a very important woman involved in, the, in that first book of social epidemiology that I couldn't resist mentioning. It's, it's no surprise somehow but it, that a woman is behind it, but it's uh, also a sign of the times, and it's great that you brought that up. I love that. Um, I think we're going to come to an end, Howard. Um, is, there, is there any way people can get a hold of the organizations that you care about? Or I, I, we've mentioned the books, but, but any way that people can uh, get a hold of uh, some of this rinky-dink revolution uh, work? I think you have some references in the back of the book. Yeah, the, the organizations... Um, actually are described in Rinky-Dink Revolution. Exactly, yeah. And the related organizations, let's say about tax resistance and about um, the solidarity economy in terms of investments and organizations that are trying to actually disrupt the processes of, of capitalism mm -hmm. in the creative destruction realm are actually listed on the Duraja Press website. Okay. And also on my personal website that a comrade actually in Horizontal built for me as a result of this work. And, and what, what is your, the name of your website? Howard, HowardWaitzkin.org. W-A-I-T-Z-K-I-N. HowardWaitzkin.org. Uh, it's just been a delight to talk with you, and I really appreciate your spending time with us. And... Um, I'm sending love and light to you and your beloveds and hope to see you soon. And I send you love and light and joy as well, Bill. Okay, before we say goodbye today, I have a short homework assignment. Take 10 minutes to answer one of these questions. What's the rank of the United States among 11 wealthy countries in health system performance. What's the rank of the United States among the countries of the world in annual per capita public and private health spending? What's the life expectancy in years of a typical US citizen? What's the rank of the United States out of 224 countries in average life expectancy? What's the number of black versus white deaths per 1,000 in the first month of life? What's the number of black versus white deaths per 1,000 in the first year of life? Okay, folks, 
Let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo and to Malik Alim, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers, produced and edited by me, Malik Alim. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life both a microscope and a telescope. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.